Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio, where each week we talk to a musician, artist, author, or other creative Mississippian. I'm your host, Leslie Barker, Arts-Based Community Development Director at the Mississippi Arts Commission. And today I'm speaking with playwright and librettist Jerry Dye. Jerry is the recipient of the Award for Dramatic Literature from the Fellowship of Southern Writers. His work with the National Op- the Washington National Opera was performed at the Kennedy Center. His most recent work is the transformation of Jane Doe with Chicago Opera Theater. And he grew up in Amory, Mississippi. I am honored to call Jerry a friend and a mentor, and I'm so excited to have him here today. Welcome, Jerry. Thank you so much for being here. I am divinely happy to be here. (laughs) Uh, So Jerry's joining us from Chicago, so excited about that. And I introduced you, Jerry, as a playwright and librettist, but the truth is, if you know Jerry, he's a whole lot more than that. He's an actor, he's a director, he's just about everything you can think of in the theater world. And we're going to talk about all of that, and we're going to start with where it all started, which was Amory, Mississippi. So Jerry, tell us a little bit about growing up in Amory. Yeah, born and raised in Amory, Mississippi. Um, uh, a wonderful town, lovely. I believe it's the first, what is the first? Uh, it was created by the railroad, by the Frisco. Um, okay. And my grandfather was a railroader. He was an engineer um, for the Frisco line. And uh, and yeah, it was, a, it was a wonderful, wonderful little life in Amory, Mississippi. I lived there for only the first four years of my life. My grandparents... Uh, grandparents stayed there and uh and then I lived in Tupelo also for okay I didn't realize birthplace of Elvis um yeah yeah yeah. and then of course you know uh life has taken me all over the world but you know Mississippi is Mississippi has always been home Mm. how does Mississippi or how did Mississippi start you off early as an artist like how did it filter into your worldview early on (laughs) <laughs> uh, I, I was I was a painfully I was a painfully shy kid, uh, just almost completely silent. And uh, my grandfather, like who I mentioned earlier, was was really worried about me. And so he would he would take me to call it. He was going to take me honky tonking, um, <laughs> which meant he would he would he would snatch me up. And we would hop in the car and we would drive to Main Street Amory, which is, uh, there's a place, Vinegar Bend, right there in Amory, Mississippi, which is kind of the Main Street. And it has this lovely little bend in it. And uh, we would park the car and we would get off on one, uh, one extreme of Main Street and walk all the way down Main Street into every shop, every store, post office, drugstore, you name it. And he would make me uh, tell them my name and who my parents were and, and be cordial. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and the gift on the back end of that was we stopped off in the drugstore and I got a, 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 a peach knee high and a funny book. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, like, so what that, that kind of social aspect of 
you know, knowing who your neighbor is and having conversation and engaging, engaging with people in a way was always really at the heart of, of my experience growing up in, in Mississippi. Uh, and, a and a really a beautiful, a beautiful upbringing, a beautiful life. Um, mm. my parents, my grandparents were just completely, just like extraordinary humans. So, um, life, life was easy and there was a lot of listening involved in that process. A lot of storytelling and a lot of listening. So I think that's at the guts of me. You know, we do have, a, have the most amazing storytellers here in Mississippi. We sure do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when did you get bit by the, when did the theater bug get to you? Kind of always. So my eldest brother, um, uh, was who's no longer with us sadly i'm very very sad to say but he was uh he was on tv and film he was uh did a lot of um a lot of television and and finally ended up kind of making a name for himself being on a television show touched by an angel so uh, his name was john die and uh, loved him loved him loved him dearly but we were big enough age gap between the two of us that i you know, just looked up to him. And he was engaged in theater and creative pursuits pretty early on. So I was one of also one of those theater mouses, you know, lurking in the back and watching rehearsals and um, wanted to see what the director was doing and trying to understand, you know, everything from block, stem to stern, really, what, how theater gets made. And that, his influence on me was massive. And even, uh, he also went to the University of Memphis. Mm. So then I went and followed in his footsteps. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I definitely, uh, I definitely would give him the credit for that, certainly. Well, if you just tuned in, I'm Leslie Barker with the Mississippi Arts Commission. And today on the Arts Hour, I'm talking with my guest, Jerry Dye. And Jerry, you just mentioned going to the University of Memphis, which is how I met you. We weren't there at the same time, but it, it took us both to Memphis to study theater. And uh, I think you probably have a lot to tell us about your journey there and Southern literature. Would you say so? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. University of Memphis was a, a re, an electric time uh, going there and, and having uh, amazing professors uh, mm. that they're all retired. Um, one of which Josie Helming, Susan Kritzberg, um, and uh, our beloved Gloria Baxter, who, who I know we, you and I share as, as a credit for so much of our uh, opening up so many doors and windows in our lives. But Absolutely. Um, yeah, but Gloria uh, came from a tradition of uh, adaptation mm. and narrative theater. So, uh, as you know, taking taking stories, lifting stories directly from literature and staging them as is uh, in front of a live audience. And when I had those kinds of those first experiences with that kind of work, that was a, just a massive shift for me. Um, doing adaptations of, well, you name it, including you know, everything from Welty to, to Faulkner. Ended up, as a, as a young person, uh, reciting the words of, I was Vardaman, my mother is a fish. And not only did I get to say these kinds of words out loud, but we also took it on tour and, uh, and performed the work in, uh, in Paris. I was 19 years old, speaking the words of Faulkner in Paris and seeing 
seeing how French people were receiving um, the work. Uh, I was prepared for that because I had been told like, just wait. <laughs> the, French, the French have a fondness for Faulkner. But when I saw like really how people all around the world were looking at, um, at our culture, and and uh, and being mystified by it, in the same way that I was, right? Um, that was a that was a big shift. But through that time at University of Memphis, I also ended up collaborating with all of my other my fellow students, and we created a theater company together, which is still in operation um, today. Voices of the South. So, yeah. yeah. So we got to talk about Voices of the South a little bit. If, uh, tell, tell the people who might not be familiar with the beautiful work of Voices, tell us a little bit about it. Well, they've been around for a hot second, um, mm -hmm. several decades now. Um, it started at a company between um, uh, just a company of two, Jenny Madden, Jenny Odell Madden and Alice Berry. And they were, they decided they were going to go to the Edinburgh French Festival and perform. Um, and they did an adaptation of literature directed by Gloria Baxter and it went to Edinburgh, did very well, got crazy rave reviews and they came home and started a company. Hmm. And um, since then that company's really been de de uh, dedicated to new work um, with a particular emphasis on um, adaptations of literature um, and solo performance. They've also created the Memphis Children's Theater Festival. Uh, it's a great, it's an amazing organization uh, and they're even during these amazing, crazy pandemic times, they've been rising to the occasion and uh, performing uh, virtually as well, like, like, like so many artists. So with Voices, you were actor, you were director, and most certainly you were playwright. Tell us some of the plays that you created while working with Voices. Oh my goodness! So, so many. So I was artistic. I was the artistic director for for uh, nearly eight years. So, uh, ugh, I can't kind of countless, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Everything from uh, from children's theater to uh, uh, to original plays to adaptations. Um, very much interested in community work, uh, mm -hmm. gathering stories from community, and also kind of supporting artists in the in the act of creation. So. Uh, providing resources for artists that were trying to make something from the ground up and create something that had never existed before. During that time, I also uh, wrote uh, one of my own plays, which was called Cicada, uh, which somebody in the interview <laughs> uh, was the director of said play. Um, and uh, that Writing cicada, writing cicada was uh, a massive shift for me creatively because it allowed me to um, really tell my own story for the first time in many ways. Uh, and then also it, it received, it was very well received. Mm -hmm. um, we, uh, the play ended up having, uh, getting uh, nominated and then subsequently being awarded the, um, an award from the Fellowship of Southern Writers um, for theater. And, uh, and when that happened and that kind of recognition outside of our, our sphere happened, um, it was a kind of, it was validation for me to, mm -hmm. to dig into the writing and, and pursue that in a, in a, in a more uh, 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 I don't know, aggressive way, but definitely in a, in a, a whole heart, body, soul, and mind 
went into uh, being a writer. Um, and I'm, though I still direct and I still um, perform, uh, I do get to every once in a while, that's when, that's when I, I really went full time as a writer mm-hmm. after that play. That was such an amazing experience and group of people working on that play. I just remember being in awe of the the beauty of the script and everyone in the room. And you actually took me to Amory uh, to teach me about some of the places that inspired Cicada. So tell us a little bit about how that place worked its way into that script. Well, I mean, if you, if you, if you, if you, if you see the play or read the play, you will, uh, if you're from, if you're from Northeast Mississippi, you will recognize every piece and particle of it, every fiber, it's in the DNA of it. It's, um, yeah, I mean, I could tell you about the plot of the, the story or just, I don't know, just growing up, growing up how I grew up, um, mm. living, living in Amory, um, listening to people, you know, without mm-hmm. digging too, too deep into, into family stories, you know, uh, my, my, uh, there's a, a vein of grief, mm. uh, inside my family story that's deep and, um, filigreed and, mm-hmm. In many ways, that play was meant to address that. Um, there's something I always say when you're from the South, you, the word forlorn, mm-hmm. <laughs> as you know, Absolutely. is in the play. And it, there's this great line where the lead character say, says, describes where the house is and the land that the house is on and he says he says the word forlorn and he says i love i love that word it sounds it sounds uh so beautiful like a dog howling Mm. and uh and yeah i mean there's just something so rich and um complicated and beautiful and very sad about Mm. where i'm from and it's all in me. This is Leslie Barker. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show airs on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5. To access all of our past shows, subscribe to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry Lewis, Carl Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes that was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Leslie Barker with the Mississippi Arts Commission. 
Today, I'm talking with librettist and theater artist, Jerry Dye. So Jerry, right before the break, we were talking about your time in Memphis with Voices of the South and how you really committed to being a full-time writer with your play, Cicada. And then a new, a new turn happened, something else came about, and you started writing the books for opera. So go figure. Yeah, go figure. <laughs> how, did, how did that happen? Tell us about it. Someone came, you know, I, I, I will say this about Cicada. We were talking about it earlier and I, sometimes, and I think every, every single artist will, will, can relate to this. Sometimes you make a thing mm -hmm. and it, it seems to have a bit of a North, I call it like a North star over it. Mm -hmm. And that play really did. So um, in, in addition to, you know, having awards and good reviews and the cast being so connected to one another, right? So like, mm -hmm. Everyone was on stage together in a in a profound way. Um, in addition to that, someone came to see uh, the uh, artistic director of Opera Memphis came to see Cicada, and took me to lunch and said, "Hey, have you ever thought about writing? Your writing is lyrical. Would you ever consider writing for opera?" And I said, "Of course." And um, of course, you know, you just have to say yes to these kinds of things. You have to kind of yeah. yes and the moment and step through the door as best you can. And so the project was called Ghosts of, Ghosts of Crosstown. Um, if anyone's ever been to Memphis, Tennessee, they know that there's a the Sears Crosstown building, uh, big old building, like a battleship of a building and been there forever in a day. And it was like a town. It was like a community. It was massive. And it had been derelict for many, 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 many years. And some concerned citizens came together and said, how can we transform this thing into something that meets this moment? And uh, since then, they have. But before that, they brought in a bunch of artists to create work around the building, to talk about the life of the building, uh, stories associated with 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 going into the the old Sears, uh, the old Sears, uh, 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 the big Sears store in the in the in the basement of the building, and it was a massive distribution center. So so many people worked there. People fell in love there. They had families. They they made lives, and so they hired me to come in and collect stories from people that had some sort of relationship with the building. And then they brought in five composers to turn those stories into uh, what they call monodramas or arias, sung by uh, uh, one or more people. And so that happened. And those pieces uh, were very well received. They were sent to uh, Opera America, which is, you know, opera's kind of, you know, um, the, the, the representative of opera across the United States and they were performed and I received uh, phone calls and coffee dates and people were saying, Hey, let's, let's talk about writing opera. You know, as theater people, we, we often like the idea of collecting stories or working in community in that way is very much part and parcel of the work that we kind of do. But in opera, it, it's still pretty in many ways, pretty fresh. Um, and so I think I kind of stood out, I guess, in a good way. And, and since then, I have been working in opera full time. Um, I've got several operas under my belt and, um, and I'm creating original operas, but I'm also doing, still doing the sourcing stories from community. 
Tell us a little bit Surprise. more about that. Yeah, that's wonderful. Tell us a little bit more about that process, about people's stories turning into these songs in the operas. Yeah. Um, you know, after the Ghost of Crosstown project, uh, one of the first big, big ones that I did after that, um, someone, someone who was, again, <laughs> right place at the right time, someone happened to be watching one of those pieces at an Opera America con conference. And that, that person was um, Ben Hilgert with the United States Army Field Band. Hmm. And he said, hey, would you, what if we did a project where you, we went into uh, military communities and talk to service members and their families about their lives and we turned it into something I don't know something and at first we thought oh we'll do a 10 minute 15 minute piece um, but very quickly that 10 to 15 minute piece turned into a um, a, a chamber opera um, and the army granted me and the composer Zach Redler and Ben um, access to Walter Reed and uh, so we were at Walter Reed talking to soldiers who had recently returned home. We, uh, uh, we went to bases. Um, we spoke uh, with, with, with military service members and families from like really all different walks of life, uh, collected those stories. And then I turned those stories into something called the, uh, uh, an opera called The Falling and the Rising. Um, which has been since then that that process started in about 2016, 15, 16, kind of. Um, and the for that first premiere, it's 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 been in Texas, it's been in Seattle, it's been um, it's been in Baltimore, it's been in upstate New York, it's been in Chicago, um, it's uh, it's been uh, in New York, and it's been in New Orleans, it's been all over. Um, but that is that kind of work sitting in a room and uh, listening in that way has really transformed who I am as an artist. Um, you know, I, I totally understand that. I did a project where I listened to interviews to write a play and it was with my, people in my neighborhood, it was one of the most transformative experiences ever to listen that intently to other people over and over and what they were saying. How, how has that affected you and your worldview and your view of art? Uh, it's, it's massive. You know, like when we, you know, as, as, you know, as a Southerners, uh, and if you go to see a movie or go to see a play or whatever, and you see yourself reflected um, in that movie or in that TV show, if you're a person of color and you see your life in front of you, if you, there's, there's nothing like it, right? I mean, there's nothing, right. there's, it, it reaches you on a cellular level. And what this kind of work does is it, it taps into that space, mm -hmm. which is very personal. And uh, there's it, it's context, right? I, immediately, mm -hmm. like when we do, when the Falling and the Rising tours, we have many of our interviewees that'll show up and 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 be in the audience, right? And mm -hmm. and and stay after for talkbacks and discussions about uh, what it means to 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 tell the truth 
or something like the truth of a life, um, it, it connects people uh, to the subject matter in a way that nothing else does. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I've, I've really, I've turned into such an evangelical about that kind of work lately. Just, I'm really passionate about um, story gathering and, and what happens in not just the, in the gathering process, in the writing process, but also in the performing process and what the effect that that has on the performer that's, that's, that's say in, the, in, a, in a case of an opera, that's singing that language, that is someone else's language. Uh, and then you then add it to, you know, you're singing it for an audience, right? Uh, and let's say someone in that audience, it's their language to see your ideas, your words and your sentiments um, kind of elevated in this, in a way that opera does, right? In this magnificent way is, uh, it's, it, let me tell you, it's something, it really is something special. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. This is the Mississippi Arts Hour, and I'm your host, Leslie Barker, talking with Jerry Dye. You know, Jerry, you were talking about the impact it has on performers to sing someone else's words. Have you had any interesting feedback from performers about what that's like for them? Yeah, you know, lately, so lately, one of the things that um, that I've been, I've been doing is... Uh, during this whole pandemic as I've been working with singers across the United States. So I, I, I was commissioned to write a piece. Um, maybe some of your listeners know of a place called Chautauqua. Um, Chautauqua is an amazing, uh, it's, it's, it, 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 you've never, you've really, if you, if you ever get a chance, once all of this COVID madness is over with and people are able to, to go and do and be near and close to one another again, I, I, I recommend all of your listeners to, to head on over to Chautauqua. It's a nine weeks. Uh, it is packed full of, you name it, arts, literature, um, opera, dance companies that perform over this nine-week period in this one tiny little beautiful village in uh, in upstate New York. Uh, it's a, there are three, like 350 people that live there in the off-season. And of course, that just, it, it explodes during the summer months. So Chautauqua invited me to come to write an opera about the history of Chautauqua, which has a rich history. It's, um, you know, uh, it's it's a it's a cool place, um, and while there, uh, I, I was like everyone else pre COVID was ready to move out into the world and do what I needed to do, and we kind of had to 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 take a step back and figure out what to do remotely. Hmm. So I started interviewing singers about their lives from about you know. Um, uh, March, say, 8th, 9th, or 10th, when it became very clear that our lives were going to be different until the present day about what that's like. I feel like all of us have lived so many different lives in this one window of time. And, uh, and I would interview with the composer, Francis Pollock, uh, for about an hour. We would collect those words and we trans translated those words into uh, a three to five minute song. And then we gave that song back to the singer that we interviewed to sing remotely in whatever location they were in. And you know, I call it, it there's a, the process of doing that, it creates this 
remarkable circle of generosity, mm. you know? Um, we all agree to be in the room together. We are all listening. We are all sharing. We are all putting, putting our best selves forward in that moment. Creation happens. We hand it back to the singer. And then the singer then gets to interpret. And then the singer gives it back to the audience. So it, it doesn't, those kinds of, those kinds of uh, circles, like I call the circle of generosity, those kinds of things, that, that energy that it creates, it does not stop. It just keeps going. So listening to a singer tell the truth of their life, uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't even, how do you, I, I don't, there are no words to, to shape that. I just know that the singers uh, often have trouble <laughs> finding, mm -hmm. depending on the content, having, they have trouble finding ways to make those beautiful notes without crying, you know, in some cases. Um, but there's a, it creates a richness. It, that, that richness show, literally shows up in the tone in the, in the actual mechanism of the voice. Um, so yeah, uh, that whole process has been uh, my lifeline during the pandemic window because I, I find myself, I mean, I think all of us are exhausted with Zoom, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> like, who isn't out of Zoom? Raise your hand. Um, but we, we being in the rooms and just my job is to be there to ask questions, much like you, to ask questions and just kind of listen mm -hmm. and to see what, to see what uh, arrives is, uh, it, it's, it's activated an empathic place inside of me that has made it possible for me to to kind of scale some of the challenges of this time. You know, you said something that it was so beautiful. You, you said it was a circle of generosity. Yeah. And I mean, I can think of nothing else that we all need more than that right now. Um, so that's just- I wanna, I wanna bathe in it right now. This is Leslie Barker. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show airs on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at 5. To access all of our past shows, subscribe to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast using your favorite podcasting app. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to the Mississippi Arts Hour on MPB Think Radio. I'm Leslie Barker, Arts-Based Community Development Director for the Mississippi Arts Commission. And today I'm speaking with Amory, Mississippi native, Jerry Dye. And right before the break, Jerry and I were talking about his 
adventure, uh, his adventures in writing opera and writing the, the book for opera and the path that took him there. And, and his most recent one was done with Chicago Opera Theater. Is that, am I saying that right, Jerry? Correct. Yeah. Okay, great. So tell us about that show that just happened. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Chicago is my home base now, and uh, Chicago Opera Theater is an amazing institution. They do um, um, uh, they they do original work, right? Which is uh, is in opera right now. There there's more new opera being created in the United States of America than has ever been created in the history of opera in America. Mm. Um, it's a really important time because opera is in a pivot and trying to figure out how to um, be a relevant art form. It has a history of, of kind of, you know, like you, you can turn on a commercial and you'll see some you know, like person in a Wagnerian helmet singing and it's a punchline, right? Typically, mm. uh, mm -hmm. opera is, is, is thought of as being elitist and snobby. And, uh, and what I'm loving working in opera right now is because I'm working, A, with a lot of really young people who are teaching me and changing my life and making me uh, see things in a very different way. Uh, and, uh, and we're all creating work together. Um, it's a pretty exciting time. So uh, Chicago Opera Theater is one of those organizations that's, that's stepping up and, 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 and making that happen in a big way. And they have something called a, the Vanguard Opera Project, uh, which is they bring in and mentor an, a first time opera composer into, in, the, in the organization for a year. And they, uh, they mentorship them, mentor them through that process. And then it culminates basically in a, in a, in a full length opera. Uh, Stacy Garrett, who is unbelievable um, composer, I love her to death. Uh, accomplished composer, uh, orchestral composer, but she's been working in orchestral world for for forever. But this was her first opera. So I'm not only getting someone who is just kind of ex wanting to be in the room, but I'm also collaborating with someone who has so much experience underneath their belt. And uh, we were, we created a story. Uh, we wanted to write something about Chicago. Uh, I, I had never written anything about Chicago yet. So, um, and what, what better story when you think about Chicago than, than 1920 Chicago. So the opera all takes place within two days. Um, uh, the day after New Year's Eve, New Year's Day in Chicago, 1920 right on the eve of um, women's rights to vote, um, right before the stock market crash, right in the, in the, in the kind of dead center of the most Chicago-y Chicago-ness you can possibly think of from music to language. So there's so much to draw from. Um, but the transformation of Jane Doe, uh, there's, uh, I was driving down Lakeshore, if people are familiar with Chicago, Lakeshore is the, one of the most beautiful drives that goes along Lake Michigan. And I was driving to Chicago Opera Theater and the Drake Hotel is a beautiful old hotel that's right there kind of at the bend. And, um, and I, I was like, I wonder if there's a story there. So I went to the Drake Hotel, I sat and had tea downstairs and started doing some research, uh, talked to some people at the hotel. And it turns out most of those hotels downtown Chicago have a ghost story 
attached to it. Mm. And in every case, in, 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 in almost every case of every ghost story in every one of those hotels, there's a woman and she's jilted and she leaps from the top of the building. And when you dig into those kinds of stories, sometimes it's hard to tell if those stories are even real or not. Um, they're fabricated. And in those scenarios, women are typically used as a kind of... Uh, 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 as a symbol, as an image, as a uh, uh, basically <laughs> for the patriarchy, frankly, mm -hmm. um, this kind of sacrificial lamb. But we ask ourselves, Stacey and I ask ourselves, who is, who are these women? Are they real? What were their lives like? Why did they jump? And we created an original story based on um, these kind of ghost stories that exist all over the, all over Chicago in these classic old hotels. Um, yeah. Wow. It was, so, it was an incredible experience. So the, the name of the opera, The Transformation of Jane Doe, yeah. is not actually, it, it's not in reference to one woman, but to many women. Is that, am I hearing that correctly? We use one, we use one woman's story as our, mm -hmm. as our driving force, but yeah, it is definitely meant to be a stand in for, 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 for women at that moment. Uh, it was a huge uh, change in, in, for lives of women, um, you know, coming out of the, coming out of the, the, the famous World's Fair in Chicago, um, mm -hmm. the women were in the workforce for the first time during that time, all leading up into the, uh, the the turn of the century uh, and the our lead character in it is Abigail. She's a she's a journalist. Allah, my inspiration was was Barbara Stanwyck, whom I adore. Um, uh, a journalist who was trying to uh, like really break into the uh, the world of journalism in Chicago at the time. There were you know over fifty different newspapers that operated in Chicago. Um, journalism was king in Chicago. Um, and she is, uh, is assigned a story about a Jane Doe who jumps from the top of a hotel on New Year's Eve uh, to find out, you know, what's the scoop. And she, without, without revealing too much, I will tell you that she goes on a, on a journey to find out who Jane Doe was uh, and learn about her life. And she finds out that ultimately there's a, there's a personal connection. Um, but yeah, that's the transformation of Jane Doe. Wow. And, and this show recently happened virtually, I believe. And tell us about the creation process of making a new opera during quarantine. Yeah. I, you know, like, like most people, uh, I was, I, I was able to, uh, working from home has become a thing for 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 many many americans mm -hmm. um and i was lucky enough to be able to work from home uh and so i was not i was not, i'm not going out a lot right i'm not heading out into the city too much if at all i think i had left i left my house maybe eight blocks <laughs> mm -hmm. since since about march 10th um not beyond that so uh so the act of, of doing anything in that way was a huge experience for me. Um, Chicago Opera Theater wanted, we were supposed to be performing the show in a, in a kind of a workshop format at uh, a smaller theater. And there probably would have been about a hundred or so people in attendance. Um, but because of, because of doing it remotely like this and filming it, it was able, I mean, 
hundreds and hundreds of people saw it all over the United States, which is something I think a lot of artists are understanding that right now. Um, but these singers, so uh, so the COVID restrictions for rehearsals, uh, singers have been talked about in terms of being super spreaders um, because of the aerosol with singing, um, which they've been trying to do research on that and figure out what the, what the reality is with that. And so we got to be careful, you know, you got to protect those singers, you got to protect um, everyone in the room. So in lieu of having a full audience, um, Chicago Opera Theater secured this beautiful old theater, the Studebaker Theater in the Fine Arts Building. And we, the singers were all separated in rehearsals uh, between plexiglass, the musicians, <laughs> the wind players were, uh, outfitted with in plexiglass. Everyone was, you know, 12 and 16 feet apart. Um, there were HEPA filters going 24 seven windows were open and everyone had to sing in masks mm. or play in masks if they could. Um, and so as you can imagine, trying to figure out diction alone was like, wow, what's, what, 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 every, all the rules are just completely changed. Um, so we rehearsed like that for about a week and a half. And then finally, when we got to perform it in front of cameras, um, live, still socially distanced. So that was, you know, uh, staging, full staging was out of the question. The opera singers finally got to remove their masks and sing for only the final dress first and then for the final performance only and when those singers lifted those masks off their faces and those otherworldly voices like opened up in that space it was such an it was such an emotional experience for certainly for me but i think everyone in the room um yeah to be able to be in a room with people, to be able to create is what, you know, it's what artists do, certainly, but it's what we all want to do, you know? That kind, of that kind of creation is connection. Reaching out in Zoom, <laughs> um, you know, is, an, is its own act of creation, right? Because mm -hmm. we're, we're, we are trying desperately to reach one another, right? We're trying desperately to hold each other's hands through this. We're trying desperately to hear each other's voices through this moment. And, um, and I think artists, everyone understands that right now. The only thing with artists is, uh, I think we have, a, we have a responsibility to kind of lead the way and and solve the, and solve some of these problems as best we can at this moment i i totally agree and i would you know love to hear you talk a little bit about you know your view of how we can do that as artists and what our responsibility is in in that in this moment if you if you talk to any any creator right now again maybe not even I, i'm i'm saying creator uh, in lieu of saying artist, because I think it is in it, part of our humanity, <laughs> our shared humanity is like you. One could argue. I had a very dear friend of mine who I admire very much, who's always been a teacher to me, who said, you know, ultimately all we're all we are doing is creating. That's what we're here to do. We're mm -hmm. creating homes. We're creating families. We're creating a meal. We're um, 
creating a garden, we're creating relationships, but we're all in this, we're all engaged, right? In this act of um, creation. And, and so much of that is dependent on connection. So what I see with all my artist friends and all the kind of creators in the world is everyone is, everyone's learning something new, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when I'm on a Zoom call with, say, someone in their 80s who is not a fan of technology, mind you, uh, and watching them scale that uh, is, is, is very exciting to me. Um, I'm learning how to do things that I never thought I would learn how to do. Um, I'm learning how, I'm learning about technology, I'm learning about how the camera works, I'm learning about how intimacy is communicated via uh, filmed experience in ways mm. that, that I never thought that I, that I would. Um, you know, and in, when I walk through my neighborhood in Chicago here to the store, and I see my neighbors who prior to COVID, I certainly did not know their name, but I didn't know them in any way um, and may not have even recognized their faces after seeing them three or four times. I see those same neighbors. I have a relationship with them and they're sitting on their front porch and they're playing um, musical instruments mm. for people. <laughs> who are walking by their front porch. Oh, um, wow. You know what I mean? As a, as a gesture of uh, kindness and solidarity. Um, so I'm, I'm seeing artists, I'm stepping outside of whatever kind of, you know, myopic idea you have about what, you know, fame or getting rich or, winning the prize or whatever that is. You, 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 you see artists uh, kind of recalibrating and going like, okay, what's important to me? I, I, there's not one person listening to the sound of our voice in this moment that during this window of time from say again, March what, 10th or 12th or 15th to this moment that has not spent a lot of time thinking about that question, wait what really matters to me right now mm. and discovering that some of the things that they thought <laughs> were in fact not the things um so this kind of reevaluation, it, it i feel like is happening happening in all of our minds um and value systems are are shifting and people are deepening their uh it doesn't feel like you're deepening your relationship with people right now, but I wholeheartedly believe that people are deepening their relationships with one another and um, the, the people in their orbit and the people not outside, outside their orbit. You know, I started a, a, a virtual reading group on via zoom and we meet each other once a week. And all we do is we read aloud to one another. <laughs> on Zoom. That started early on in the very beginning of the pandemic and is still going on to this day. We read uh, William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying out loud together every single week for, you know, until we finished the thing. Um, that, you can't tell me that that action is not like radical. 
yeah. like that is like radical kindness and radical togetherness. And I would not have had that experience um, otherwise. This is Leslie Barker. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show airs on MPB Think Radio every Sunday afternoon at five. To access all of our past shows, subscribe to the Mississippi Arts Hour podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app.